British mercenary soldier who tactically converted to Islam in order to make a fortune. Later in his life, having been highly successful as a Muslim pirate, converted back to Christianity and uh, served the king nobly and is probably buried in, in, in this very church. Who knows? Certainly in the city, I'm sure. Um, uh, and uh, what's also interesting is that some of the people who were taken to Algeria as slaves and co converted to Islam stayed there and became Muslims. And there are families with, with uh, Irish names still in the Muslim community there. Um, and so it just struck me that um, the, the, the complexities of these issues about crossing boundaries between faiths are nothing new. But I'd just also like to give you one other tiny little anecdote, and I don't want to overstay my welcome, which is a much more serious one, which was earlier this year, uh, a young uh, Muslim uh, was proselytized by uh, quite, uh, I think, uh, enthusiastic Christian mission in Southwark, and he converted to uh, um, Christianity. A few weeks later, we don't know whether this was connected in any way, he was killed in a knife uh, crime. And the end of this story was the extraordinary uh, grief for the family who were Christian as to whether he should have a Christian burial or a Muslim burial. Um, and in a way, that's a rather shocking anecdote that actually just suggests that these boundaries are still very potent for us today. So without more ado, I would like to introduce the first of our, our speakers, uh, which is uh, Dr. Andrew Smith on my, my left, in the left pulpit. Um, uh, he's the leader of Youth Encounter for the Scripture Union, uh, which helps Christian young people live out their faith amongst Muslims based in East Birmingham. And he is the Christian Youth Specialist for the Christian Muslim Forum, who are the sponsors of this event, and to whom Julian and team, we owe a great debt of thanks for organizing this. So, Andrew, we put ourselves in your hands for eight minutes. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the invitation to speak here this morning. The title of this debate is Ethical Witness, Christian and Islamic Evangelism in a Climate of Toleration. I would want to suggest very early on that perhaps I would like a different title, if that's okay. Because after 15 years of working for Scripture Union and working as a Christian in and amongst many, many Muslim uh, people of different ages, I would want to suggest that perhaps we want to talk about Christian and Islamic evangelism in a climate of irritation and suspicion. Many years ago, when I was a schools worker, I was uh, in a secondary school and there was a young Muslim lad, about 15, very, very devout, very keen, very keen to convert me to Islam. And we have many heated debates in the classroom. And one day he came up to me after the lesson and presented me with a book and said, would you read this about Islam? And I said, great, thank you. And took his book away and he went and was very pleased that he'd done his evangelism. This book by a fairly well-known Muslim was, I have to say, as a Christian, deeply insulting. It was set up as a hypothetical dialogue between a Muslim and a Christian. And throughout the book, the Christian was, to put it politely, an idiot. Every time the Muslim asked him anything about the Bible, the Christian went, oh gosh, yes, 
I was wrong, it's wrong, how silly of me. And at the end of the book, he converted to Islam, but was clearly presented as a Christian who hadn't thought about anything. And as a Christian to receive that was irritating. It didn't take my faith seriously, it didn't take me seriously. And I was able to have that conversation with that lad about what it was like to receive that book. But it also made me think, what do I give to other people to read about Christianity? Am I as irritating to others as they can be to me? And I know many people whose objection to evangelism is actually in the way it's done because actually it's irritating. I've also been evangelized many times by a young lady in Birmingham who has got to be one of the most enthusiastic, faithful, committed evangelists I've ever met. I don't know her name, but if you walk up a certain road in Birmingham, at some point, I think she, she hasn't been doing it recently, but for many years she was there, a young lady would come out of a side street and come up to you and say, are you stressed? And many times she's leapt out at me and said, are you stressed? Now, that, that is also slightly irritating, but what I find more difficult about that is actually trying to work out why she cares whether I'm stressed or not. What's in it for her? Why, why does it matter to her whether I or any of the other thousands of people she talks to, why does she care whether they're stressed? I spent quite a long time once trying to work out why she cared. I eventually found out it's because she's an evangelist for the Scientologists fine. But it would have, I found it a lot easier if I'd known that at the start. Because what I found that increased was suspicion. Who are you? Why are you doing this? And I find many people are suspicious of evangelists. Why are you doing this? Why are you running a homeless shelter? Why are you doing language classes in your church? Is this evangelism or is it not evangelism? And I would want to suggest that one of the issues we face is we live in this climate of irritation and suspicion. Over the years, many, many people have debated whether Christians and Muslims should do evangelism either to each other or to people of different faiths or none. And whilst that debate's been raging in academic circles, as I'm sure you're all aware, out on the street, Christians and Muslims of all ages have been getting on and doing it. It's happening. And so to start to talk about ethical guidelines, I think is very helpful. We start to address the question, not of should we do this, but how do we do it? How do we stop being irritating? How do we stop acting suspiciously? We live in a country that would want to uphold uh, the U United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, and I think that's quite an interesting document to look at. And Article 18, which is their one on religion, says that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom, either alone or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship and observance. And why I think that's important, and important for us to wrestle with, is that for many Christians and many Muslims, Doing evangelism is an integral way that they manifest their religion. It is not an optional extra for the super keen and the super holy or the professionals. It is 
how they live out their faith. There are some who would seek to dictate how others should exercise their religion, to say, by all means, go to church, by all means, pray, by all means, do these, but don't do evangelism. We will set the boundaries of what your faith looks like. And yet, if we are to say to people, you are allowed to exercise your faith fully, we have to recognize that for some people, for many people, I would argue, that intrinsically includes the right to tell other people about it. That's not an optional extra. It is their faith. It is a faithful outworking of that which they believe. So I think as a society, we have a right to say, how do we create the space for you to do that? But as those who want to do evangelism, we have the right to ask, how are you going to do that in a way that is not irritating or causes suspicion? So the Christian Muslim Forum, we, we produced this document and there are copies available here called Ethical Guidelines for Christian and Muslim Witness to try and deal with this issue. How do we take seriously those who want to do evangelism and help them do it in a way that is ethical? It recognizes, as does the UN declaration, that people do convert. And I would want to affirm the right for people to convert. I have many friends who have converted from Sikhism and Islam and Hinduism to Christianity. I have friends who have converted from Christianity to Islam. I have friends who have converted from Hinduism to Islam and all sorts of other combinations. It happens. And I would want to uphold the right for that. But I would also want to uphold the right for people not to convert. I would want to hold, uphold the right for people to say, I don't want to listen to you today, actually. Please leave me alone. I'll finish with another story. A group of uh, young Muslims I was teaching in, in a lesson many years ago. And the issue of conversion came up. Should people be allowed to convert? And I asked this group of pupils who were all about uh, age uh, 15, 16. And they were all Muslims, and I was the only uh, non-Muslim in the room. And I said, do you think someone should be allowed to convert if they wanted to become a Christian or a, a Hindu or a Buddhist? Should they be allowed to convert? And with almost one voice, they looked at me and went, but if they convert, they'll go to hell. So that would be stupid. And I said, okay. But supposing they want to be stupid? Supposing they decide that actually they want to convert even if that means they'll go to hell. And they looked at me and went, well, yes, they have to be allowed to do that, but they are stupid. That's why I like working with teenagers, because they tell you how it is. The right to convert, the right to also not to convert, to stay where you are. So we have got this idea of evangelism in a climate of irritation and suspicion, it would be great to have a climate of toleration, but I would like to suggest a deeper, a deeper climate to work towards would be a climate of love. In the scriptures we're commanded, in the Bible, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in the document called A Common Word, written by many Muslim scholars, they picked up on this theme, the love of neighbor and the love of God. And I would want to suggest that Evangelism that is neither irritating nor suspicious, evangelism that takes the other person seriously, is best done in a climate of love. Thank you. Okay. So on my right, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Magra. 
um, who is uh, one of the co-presidents of the Christian Muslim Forum. Um, he's also uh, well known as a public speaker. He's an imam in Leicester, and he has a very high profile um, as the, I think, the chair of the Masjid and Community Affairs Committee of the Muslim Council of Britain. So, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here. Uh, please, you have eight minutes to... Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I begin in God's name, the most merciful, the most beneficent. Thank you for this invitation to share with you some of my thoughts about a subject that is, I think, very important to both Christians and to Muslims. Islam encourages its followers to share the faith with others, to invite others to join their ranks, and to give up belief in God in all the other different ways that it is observed and practiced in the world and choose only the Muslim way of believing in God. So many Muslims would regard this as a religious duty and an obligation. As a result of this, I have observed Muslims of being of two kinds. Those who wish to invite to Islam whilst adhering to all the rules and regulations. And others who are over enthusiastic in inviting people to Islam and as a result neglect or even ignore the rules and regulations of invitation to Islam. The Quran paints a very beautiful picture of the colorful nature of humanity in terms of skin color, in terms of the different tongues and languages, in terms of the different religions and cultures and customs that human beings all over the world follow. The Quran also talks about the right for individuals to believe in God or to reject God. The Quran also talks about the need for people to be free in making the decisions that they make and compulsion forcing people to follow Islam is forbidden in the pages of the Quran. The Quran also captures a dialogue between Muhammad, peace be on him, and the Arab community in Mecca in the time of his preaching, who followed a number of religions, including paganism and idolatry. And the Quran says, in a way, capturing Muhammad's dialogue with these groups of people who did not believe in the one true God, that to you is your religion and to me is my religion. So we find uh, in Muslim tradition, in light of the Quran and the verses of the Quran, 
that although the Muslims are called upon to invite others to join Islam, the rules and the regulations that should govern this kind of activity are not only just reflecting the tolerance that Muslims should have towards others, but I would suggest that they respect others for choosing to be who they want to be. I personally am undergoing a journey of my own in how I relate to both Muslim evangelism or da'wah as we like to call it in Arabic and Christian evangelism. I grew up uh, in a country where Christianity was a major faith practiced by the people of that country. Missionary groups were very, very common and would come from all over the globe to this little country to preach the gospel and to teach Christianity and to seek converts. I saw how they would put up missionary schools, hospitals, clinics, provide uh, water and the basic necessities for day-to-day -day lives for the poor people. So that has been in the background, in, in my mind, in the back of my mind, as a childhood experience. Then as I began to understand the place of Islam and Christianity and religion in the world, I began to realize why Muslims who were aware of missionary work had a problem with missionary work. And I began to realize why non-Muslims who had problems with Muslim da'wah work had problems with it. And it all boiled down for me to the fact that there were no really shared and in a way agreed upon principles and guidelines that both groups could subscribe to in their quest for winning over converts or reverts as Muslims would refer to them. So I was delighted when the Christian Muslim Forum with the energy that Andrew brings with him decided to make a list of ethical guidelines of how we can be true to our faith and the requirements of our faith, but at the same time be respectful of the right of others to choose to be different. I've had a number of experiences here in the United Kingdom when we have hosted non-Muslim visitors at the mosque. They would come, see the mosque, see the prayers being held, And it is quite common for one or two worshippers, Muslim worshippers, to come over to me at the end of the prayers or at the end of the visit and ask me, so when are you going to convert them into Muslims? This has worried me because that is not how 
a Muslim should treat his or her guests and visitors. They are to be welcomed and they are to be informed about the religion and what we do, etc. But under no circumstances should the Muslim or the Imam take advantage of the visitors and the guests and try to convert them. In the UK now, we have seen an increase in the area of chaplaincy work, where in the past we had perhaps Jewish and Christian chaplains uh, catering for the needs of all those who were in need of pastoral care in hospitals, in the prisons, in the armed forces and educational establishments. We now have Muslim chaplains who are beginning to join their ranks. And so that also uh, alerted me to the fact that it is quite possible for an Imam in Her Majesty's prison somewhere being approached by someone of a Christian background or of no religious background, uh, anxious, maybe frightened, worried, extremely vulnerable. So I realized that there was a potential here for this Muslim chaplain to try to take advantage of this prisoner and try to win a, con uh, a convert to Islam. So all these things uh, have been playing in my mind and I think it's extremely important uh, for us to be true to our traditions. I, I don't expect uh, a Christian who believes in evangelism to give up evangelizing uh, and I, I don't expect a Muslim to give up their enthusiasm for da'wah but as Andrew said what is most important is how we do this and the guidelines that we have drawn up we hope will help both sides to conduct their work in a respectable manner removing the uh, irritation and perhaps also avoiding situations where as we have read in some of the tabloid newspapers of young children particularly of one child who was converted to Islam by an Imam and I was not happy at all about that in fact I found that very wrong and very unacceptable and if this document can reach these people, uh, is studied by these people, and the, the recommendations of this document are taken on board by both sides, I think we can avoid such kind of situations which, rather than enhance our friendship, can antagonize uh, relationships between these two great religions of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Andrew, do you have a question about that? Or, uh, let, let, me, let, me, let me ask both of you a question. And we have about 15 minutes for questions. So I'm going to ask a question and then very much encourage people here to, 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 to come in on this. Um, uh, you've both talked about the invitational nature of your, your traditions. You've both talked, uh, talked about freedom, freedom of belief, freedom, etc. Um, and I can see uh, how, uh, if that's the nature of the conversation, then coming up with some polite ethical guidelines not to... Uh, outrage each other is a very good idea. But deep down, wouldn't you really, Andrew, prefer that Muslims accepted Jesus as, as their savior 
And deep down, Abraham, wouldn't you want Christians to see the wisdom of Islam as, as the greater revelation? Uh, is, uh, don't you, isn't deep down a fundamental conflict here? I, I, I don't think there's a fundamental conflict. Deep down, yes, I think everyone would be better off being a Christian because I think it's the best way to live. I think that's where you find salvation. Absolutely. But I would want them to choose that. And I would want them to become a Christian because they want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not because they want to be like me or because they feel coerced or because they think they'll get better education or extra money. And so whilst I would say, yes, I would love everybody, it's not because I want to be on the winning side or somehow be in the biggest group. It's because I fundamentally think that being a follower of Jesus Christ is the best way, but I would want people to be a follower of Jesus if they wanted to be, not to be, hey, we've got the biggest group, haven't we? Okay. One of the verses in the Quran actually declares that the only religion or way of life which leads to God that is chosen by God is Islam. And this is a belief that every single Muslim holds, regardless of what traditions they might be following, every single Muslim will hold this truth claim uh, as vigorously as possible. As a result, we would feel that if this is the only way and the only religion that God has chosen, it should be the religion of all humanity, or certainly the religion of those who want to be religious. If any Muslim tells you otherwise, I think they are being dishonest. However, in light of the previous references I've made to the Quran, we as Muslims also remind ourselves that this difference of religion and religious belief amongst many other differences is also part and parcel of God's design. It is God who wishes people to be Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and of no religion. And so we need to try and strike a balance to say, yes, it would be wonderful for everyone to be Muslim, but there are ways of doing that. And then if it doesn't happen, that is still God's design, that is God's will. Because we believe Islam is the best and the only religion that God accepts, we will want to give this to others. If we believed that all religions were the same, or if we believed that Christianity was more true than Islam, or was the absolute truth, then we are in the wrong boat. Then we should switch over and move to the other side. So it's a very complex area, and I think it is only fair for all the religious groups 
to have the right to claim the absolute truth, just as I would wish to make that claim for myself as a Muslim and for Islam, I have to accept that Andrew will want to do the same for Christianity and others might want to do the same for their particular religion. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, I think we have a roving microphone, do we? And, and um, would anyone like to come in with a question here? We have two uh, extraordinary, um, insightful people in the pulpits here. This is your chance to, to, to ask you. Thank you. Antoine West. And thank you very much. I'd like to thank both speakers. It's been very interesting what you've had to say. I'm wondering whether there is a great deal, and perhaps more than that emerges from the last answer, but uh, directed this very specific question about claim to truth, but there's, there's a great deal that unites both traditions. And that perhaps uh, more, when we talk about a climate of, of tolerance, there isn't in some sections of society, um, perhaps unwittingly, um, a, a climate of intolerance, a sort of secular agenda, uh, not appreciating that there is a broader spiritual dimension and, and not appreciating that uh, the, the voice from which those, exp those opinions are expressed are from a very narrow sort of, uh, a, a narrow view that, that has, that doesn't have that broader spiritual appreciation. Uh, and, and if that's so, then I wonder if there is more that can be done to emphasize the common spiritual uh, Abrahamic inheritance that the two religions uh, uh, represent and uh, help live out, whether in a practical way that could be um, um, made stronger in current society. I think that's a very good point about the secular perceptions of uh, Christian and Muslim relations. Um, the church I go to, we have a, 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 a centre, a children's centre built on the side of the church. Our church is right opposite a mosque. Almost all the mums who come into our children's centre are Muslim. We employ Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, Christian staff. It is a Christian ethos centre. And we were very privileged to have it opened by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury last year. And in his visit, one of the points he made was this. He said, actually, if you leave Christians and Muslims alone, very often they actually get on with each other. But the, the news, the secular world, would like to portray society where if religions get together, they'll end up fighting. Much of the work that I do with young people is to challenge that view, is to say, actually, when you take young people of faith away, and I take Christian and Muslim lads away for a weekend away, Actually, there's a huge amount that unites them because they are people of faith. They understand where each other's coming from. That might be from a comment I remember from a day many years ago where someone said, the trouble in our church is the adults expect the young people to behave better than the adults. And they're hypocrites. And the Muslims went, it's just the same in our mosque, you know. The adults are doing all sorts of things, but expect us to behave all the time. Now, that's a very small example, but what they found was their common f experience of being members of a faith gave them space to talk about things, gave them a shared understanding of the world. 
And I think that story of how actually being members of faiths, even when we fundamentally disagree on some things, actually is deeply uniting as well. And I think sometimes we need to spend more time showing the world that actually we can get on and we can get on well, but that we can still maintain our own integrity and have this kind of discussion where we acknowledge that we fundamentally disagree, but that we can find that common, uh, common purpose that challenges some of the, uh, the secular story that's out there. I wouldn't uh, team up with Christians against secular people. Our partnership and friendship with Christians is not as anti-secular, but it is for the real friendship that we want to generate and create between us. I think in a free, democratic, secular society, there is place for religion and for no religion. Uh, I don't feel that all the religions should gang up against secular communities. In fact, I take a lot of pride in the fact that religious communities are respectful, much more respectful and tolerant of people of no religion than the other way around. Um, so for that, I think we have to pat ourselves on the back. We are, in a way, putting into practice the teachings of our uh, respective faiths that we should uh, love and cherish fellow human beings regardless of who they are or who, who they are not. I also feel that as a Muslim, I would rather have uh, a society in which any of the religions is a major player than a society in which religion has a very small or no role to play. Which is why the Muslim Council of Britain, for example, has continually defended the position of the Church of England as the established church of our country. We have no issue with that. We have no problem with that. In fact, I've ended up on a television debate arguing against a Christian who was saying we should remove the position of the COFE and I was arguing, no, we should maintain the COFE as uh, the recognized uh, church of our country. Because I want to live in a country where religion has something to say, uh, where religion has uh, a, an equal part within the uh, components that make up that society. Uh, we have continually defended the presence of the bishops in the House of Lords. Um, there have been suggestions made that that's not fair on the other religions in our country. Why should only the Christians be in the upper house? So in order to create equality, we should remove all of them. And we have argued that no, actually, we're quite happy for the bishops to represent faith in the House of Lords. And uh, equality doesn't mean remove one, but if you want to really show some kind of equality, throw in an imam, throw in a rabbi, and uh, everyone would be happy. So we must resist all attempts, really, by non-religious groups and secular groups who are trying to remove religion from public life. I think our country will become poorer without uh, the active presence uh, of, of religious groups and religious communities. 
Thank you very much. Um, sadly, I think our, our time is up. People need to go back to their desks, I'm sure, uh, shortly. Um, it remains for me uh, to just say thank you to our two speakers. And Ibrahim, you, I think, have, have pointed very clearly to the complexity and delicacy of some of these issues. There's nothing simple and clear-cut in this, in, in this debate. And Andrew, I think you've reminded us of the, uh, the, 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 what's at stake here for, for each of us in our own faith lives, if we surrender something that we hold deeply dear to ourselves uh, too lightly to other people. So this, this is, a, this is a, a complex and difficult area. Um, I must admit, I, I, I really welcome the initiative of the Christian Muslim Forum to create some guidelines in this area. It's, a, it's an important and visionary project, um, not just because it's helpful to us in these debates here. Um, by and large, despite what happened in Southwark, uh, the, 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 the fault lines uh, between Christian Muslim communities in this country are, are not particularly violent. Um, but uh, uh, so uh, uh, we have a great opportunity here in London, I think, not only the mos most cosmopolitan city in the world, but the most cosmopolitan city in history. Never ever have so many different faith, culture, race, national groups uh, lived together, juxtaposed, intermingled in a period of huge prosperity and peace for such an extended period. And what actually happens here in London has huge implications for what happens around the world. The diaspora of every conflict in the world is here, and they're watching what happens. So whilst it may be a matter of good ethics and politeness for Christians and, and Muslims to uh, uh, honor each other in this uh, invitational, cross-invitational process, uh, it, that, that's what it is here. It is a matter not just of choice or freedom, but literally life and death in places like northern Nigeria and Turkmenistan. So um, uh, congratulations, Christian Muslim Forum, for taking a lead. And I really hope that the, 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 the ripple that, you, uh, uh, that emerges from this stone you are checking the pool spreads far and wide. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I can now indulge my, uh, uh, my priestly fantasy of giving you the notices. This is great fun. <laughs> uh, the, the first thing to say is uh, tomorrow, 11th of November, uh, is my birthday, but actually far more important, is uh, the Reverend Dr. Ken Leach, the great Ken Leach, will be in this very place um, giving a lecture at five past six in the evening as part of the Just Share uh, series, um, a very powerful subject. Is there an Anglican tradition of social justice? Is there an Anglican tradition of social justice? So uh, Ken Leach will be here tomorrow evening with that. And then the final thing to say is, um, uh, this feels like kind of marketing. <laughs> George, you should be forgiven. Um, if, if you take one of these vouchers and present it at the cafe downstairs, you get a 10% discount. Um, the, the, there's no guarantee they don't put the prices up when they see you coming with one of these things. But anyway, the, it's a generous offer by this superb cafe, which incidentally has just won all kinds of awards and was featured, I think, in the Observer magazine recently, I think. So a very special cafe down there. So if you're still hungry, um, uh, please, please do. So again, Andrew and Sheikh Ibrahim, thank you so much uh, for a very, very fascinating uh, 45 minutes. Thank you. <laughs>